You are listening to the Heartland Author Podcast. I am Aaron Apollo Camp. For this episode, I had the opportunity to interview Nancy Napier. Nancy, a professor emerita at Boise State University, has written numerous articles, several nonfiction books, and more recently has started writing fiction, with her first work of fiction being a case of too many deaths. I'm here with Nancy Napier, who is an author, a columnist, and uh, a uh, uh, professor emerita at Boise State University. Nancy, welcome to the Heartland Author Podcast. Thank you so much. I'm pleased to be here with you. Feel free to introduce yourself to our listeners. Oh, well, I would call myself an academic entrepreneur. I learned a number of years ago that I really like to start things, programs, research, directions, uh, new learning areas. And I find that once uh, a research topic, for example, I studied mergers and acquisitions years ago. I studied women uh, professionals working abroad. Once the field really gets going, then there are all kinds of experts that jump in and they can do a much better job than I can. But I, what I have learned is that I'm able to sort of see areas to pursue in terms of research and to be involved in new programs. Uh, at, at Boise State, I helped develop our international business major. I worked in Vietnam for nine years to help start up an international business school over there. Uh, first one in Vietnam. And I, that taught me that I really like new venture startups. So I've been involved in um, our executive master's of business program, which is now 10 years old, but in the design development and execution of that. So I've really liked to start things uh, at the university and not spend 30 years on one topic. So I... Um, a few years back, retired from the main part of the university, which means I don't teach undergrads anymore. I don't have to go to meetings, but I'm still uh, teaching in, coaching in, and leading uh, executive MBAs to Vietnam for a week during in that program. But I have a little more time. So I'm also trying to start up my own new venture in terms of learning how to write fiction. I've, of course, for the academic life, I had to, you have to uh, publish or perish. So I wrote tons and tons of academic journal articles and books, and then probably 10, 15 years ago, got more into writing for lay audiences, for business people. I remember reading once that the typical academic article is only read by four to six people, and I just choked at that. So I started writing more accessible books and articles, and I blog for Psychology Today. But now I'm trying to learn fiction, and I just published um, my first mystery, and I'm trying to get another one going. Um, and so that that tells me I really do like to start things. I'm not sure I ever become the absolute expert, never will. But um, anyway, I'm, I'm an academic entrepreneur. You have had a very interesting path as a writer. How did you become a writer of nonfiction books, then a columnist, then a fiction writer? <laughs> well, as I'd say, for 
the role and the job of a university professor beyond teaching, a lot of it is doing research and then writing that up and publishing it, whether in, uh, usually it's in academic journal articles, sometimes in books. And so I did that for my career. I had to, to survive. And I, um, as I said, I when I learned that most academic articles don't have a wide audience, I thought, gee, is there another way to try and get some ideas out that could be read by, learned um, by people who are living the work I'm doing? So I mentioned that I, I worked in Vietnam for almost 10 years. And when I got back from that project, um, I decided I wanted to find something to work on locally in Boise, Idaho, so I wouldn't have to travel 36 hours to a research site. And that led me to studying creativity in very diverse organizations. I don't know if you're a football fan, but we have a blue field, football field here that has become famous. And I worked with the football coaches, uh, Chris Peterson then, and and learned how they incorporated creativity into their world. I learned about the county jail, software, healthcare, and so forth. And in doing that work, I uh, decided that to write it up. And actually all of us, uh, there were about seven, seven or eight organizations I studied. We wrote a, a short book called Wise Beyond Your Field. And so that was how do football coaches learn from theater actors? How do they learn from software managers? And how do each of them learn from jail deputies and so forth? And so that was kind of my one introduction into writing something that people could read. And it was easy, very easy. It was not academic jargon whatsoever. In the same process, um, I, I worked with our local um NPR, National Public Radio Station, and did a about seven year long every day, a little clip on business ideas. And so that taught me to write in very concise ways, to be able to write and speak something in less than two minutes. And I, the reaction I got from people who heard those pieces, who read these shorter books, who read columns I've done for the local paper and for Psychology Today, more people read those than read a book that's about di product diversification and strategy. And so that was really what drove me is that when, when people said, you know, I actually can use this book in my company, we're developing, trying to develop a new culture of innovation, and I can use your book and what you've written about, that's very rewarding. And so I uh, moved from heavy-duty academic articles into more accessible, open for leaders, and easy for people to read. And so it's, um, I don't think I could go back to the hardcore academic articles. And as I say, there's so many people that are really good at that now. I'm just delighted that I can find another avenue to try to express some ideas. You've uh, written or co-written several nonfiction books, including The Bridge Generation, Wise mm -hmm. Beyond Your Field, The Creative Discipline, and Insight, among others. Mm -hmm. Without spoiling too much of your nonfiction books, what are some of them about? Um, well, you mentioned The Creative Discipline and Insight, about aha moments. And that's what really got me started in looking at organizational creativity. 
So I started reading around and several years ago, this is probably 15 years ago. And I realized there's a lot, there was at the time, a lot of research on individual creativity. So everything from artists and mathematicians to musicians and lots about how do individuals um, become creative, use their creativity, but there was not a lot about how organizations go about it. So one summer, a big project with another person, a book project fell through. And I thought, what do I do now? And I thought, let me just learn about a little bit about organizational creativity. So I visited um, a software company and a theater, Shakespearean theater company that's been it's known around the country. It has a, a Yale drama school case about them. Anyway, very unusual, but very high performing. And then I stumbled into the football program uh, a few months later. So I had three organizations to start and all of them were highly creative and also high performers in their fields, however measured. So the software company had new products and was getting all kinds of awards. The football team had uh, was on TV more and more. And actually I heard the announcer say, my gosh, they're taking risks. Well, gee, is that creative? And I thought, no way. I didn't think sports could be creative. And I went over and I, this is a smaller university than I did my PhD at Ohio State. I taught at the University of Washington. There's no way that I could have walked across campus into a coach's office and really started to work with them well, I don't think in the bigger schools. But this was a small entrepreneurial university. So that was the start of that book. And then the football coach at one point, when I was finished with the creative discipline book, the football coach here said, you know what I wish, you know, these, it takes our students, these young players, it sometimes takes them two and a half years to figure out why they're really here. They're here to, to learn, to be students. Uh, yes, football is important, but we have to help them kind of see what the role football plays in their lives. And he was, he was much more straightforward about it, but that led to me thinking about how do you help people spark insight and aha moments. So that that was that piece of it. And then the the bridge generation, well, I'm sorry. So with those two, that's after that came Wise Beyond Your Field and another one called Live Culture. And that's where I used the six, eight, nine organizations in Boise, very, very diverse. And I met with the the leaders, the CEOs of those organizations over the years, and I would listen to them and what they were concerned about, what they wanted to talk to each other about. And very often it was leadership and culture. And so those two books were really uh, the output of driven by the leaders of these high-performing, highly creative organizations. At one time we had a dance company, we had the Shakespeare actor, uh, Shakespearean company, we had software, marketing, education, law enforcement, sports, football, and then the basketball team. And so this wide-ranging, diverse group of leaders who at first would say, what can a sheriff teach a football coach? And then what can he teach a software CEO? And they learned over time, got to know each other very well, that they had a lot in common in terms of leadership problems. So those that whole set of books was um, stemmed from that question of how do organizations become more creative? The other one you mentioned 
which is really a heart. I love the name of your podcast, Heartland, but this was a heartfelt project, the Bridge Generation. Um, I, as I mentioned, I worked in Vietnam in the 90s, and then I stayed in touch with the university there that we helped uh, build a business school. I did research with people. I taught for them. So I, and now we go take our executive MBAs to Hanoi every year for a week. So I, the, the, the key part of all this is that Boise State delivered its MBA in Vietnam during the 1990s to 84 people. So we have the largest alumni group outside of the country for Boise State is in Vietnam, oddly enough. These people started as instructors at university. They were business people. Now we're talking 20 years, almost 25 years later. They are now the leaders in business, in government, and in in education in the country of Vietnam. So I joke that where we talk about a seven degrees of separation in the U.S., in Vietnam, it's two degrees. So in I know several people over there that if I, if I said, would you get me in to meet the president or the prime minister of Vietnam, they could do it. So this is, this is a very um, interesting group of people. What I hadn't really thought about was that this is a group of people who grew up during wartime during the, the American War, we call it the Vietnam War, but they call it the American War because they've had so many wars and conflicts over the last thousand years. So they grew up in wartime. Then they lived through a period from 1975 till maybe the 90s. So after the Vietnam War was over, it was a really hard period of famine, hardship. Vietnam was fighting two more wars with China and Cambodia. And so they went through this terribly difficult period. And then they are the ones now who have grown the, the economy and helped build the company. And I used to think of them as, these are the people I worked with, but I thought of them as a bridge between their, the, their ancestors had lived the same way for a thousand years. Basically they were farmers, most of them. These people went through war, famine, subsidy, period is what it's called. And now they are living in a global world and their kids are truly global citizens. So they bridged these two time periods. And then as, as I started to talk to them, I thought, gosh, I should just interview them and learn about them. We in America, um, certainly people who have any memory of the Vietnam War, very often that's what we think of when we hear Vietnam. And we know a lot about Vietnamese refugees. We know a lot about American GIs and soldiers and how hard it all was. We don't know much about what it was like in North Vietnam during that period. So these people were children being bombed on during that war. And then what was their life like after? So I interviewed maybe 30 of them. These are friends and colleagues I've known forever. And um, with another colleague of mine, this Dao Tui Ha, and we chose about 17 interviews, profiles to put into this book. Um, and they are people who range from, um, one started the equivalent of Microsoft in Vietnam. Another one runs the, is the president of the Fulbright University now there. Another one we call sort of the entrepreneur poster child. He started a a company that is now next week is opening his latest factory, high tech 
uh, started by making ID cards and and credit cards, and now does um, he does e identity cards, e passports for all of Vietnam. So for the ninety million people who have passports, his company creates these electronic version passports. Anyway, so these people have done a lot, but nobody knew anything about them, their lives and how tough it was before I knew them. And then even when I first got to know them. So that was the Bridge Generation book. And it was, um, that one has been for, I think both of us, uh, my my co-author and I, as I say, it's a heartfelt project because it was hard to hear these stories from many of the people we talked to and um, so that that was that's the last one. And now I've, I'm trying to get into fiction. But you can tell, I'm sure from what I've already said, Vietnam is like my second home. I, I was an army brat as a kid, so I moved around a lot and been in Boise, Idaho for 30 years. But I've also been going to Vietnam for 25 years. So it's like my second hometown. And these people are people that I grew up with, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah, most people from where I'm from here in East Central Illinois, if they know two things about the state of Idaho, it's uh, <laughs> it's a major potato farming state. And that university where you're you're a, a professor emerita of, of Boise yeah. State is the one that has the blue football field. That's right. That's right. It it yeah. There are other things here like Micron, a big chip manufacturer, but. We talk about uh, the the economy goes from chips to chips, so we got potato chips and micro micron chips as well. But yeah, and I I um just a quick side note, I was a typical have been a typical professor in my own world. I didn't understand the role that athletics could play as a positive force for universities. I mentioned I went to Ohio State, and and it seemed like uh, that was such a big football school, Buckeyes, and so forth. Um, I didn't get involved. I didn't know anything about it. And so when I got here and I was actually able to walk across the campus and visit with the athletic director and he said, we'll get you in to see the coach here. And the coach is all over the idea of creativity. Um, I started to realize that, that that blue field and the fact that Boise state beat, I'm trying to think now the Fiesta bowl in, I want to say 2007. I think it was Oklahoma, but I'm not totally sure. Right. It was Oklahoma. I had a faculty friend at Oklahoma at the time and we emailed that week and I said, I just hope we don't lose too badly. And of course it was this incredibly exciting game and Boise almost did lose, but uh, had a few creative plays. So I, I learned the value of having something that um, like that blue field and everybody makes fun of it in a way, but as the team got better, uh, it helped draw really great students and it's been a, it's a super place to live. So that's an easy thing, but yeah, interesting. So, so the other, the other piece about Idaho that, that some people know now is our, oddly enough, our involvement in Vietnam. I was over, I was there, I've been, to Hanoi a few times this year, and I met a woman who's retired U.S. Uh, diplomat, and she stayed on in, in Hanoi to consult, and she said, oh yeah, I know all about Boise State, and it was here early on, and I was with a group of people, and someone said, well, here's the person who really sparked all that, so that was interesting that that over there and elsewhere, Boise State is known for doing something in Vietnam. People are never quite sure, which doesn't matter, but anyway, yeah, so we've got a few things going for us.
Your first fiction work is a novel titled A Case of Too Many Deaths. Without spoiling too much about your novel, what is it about? What happens if a young rookie lawyer gets a phone call from her estranged mother who says, you need to help your aunt? You didn't know you had an aunt, but she's in prison, has been for 20 years, 25 years for killing her four children and her execution is coming up, but she still says she's innocent. Can you help? So that's the way it starts. And um, it was, so, so this is a young woman in a law firm who has to figure out whether she wants to help, how she wants to relate to her parents in all this. And she begins to learn that maybe there is um, the, the woman in prison claims she did not kill the four children. They were all under two years old and died. They thought SIDS at first and then three more. And so the argument is how can four children in one family die? So the book then moves to uh, some genetic research that has come out in the last maybe 10 years. And this is based on a, a real case out of Australia. And so the, the, when I read about it, I thought, my gosh, you know, what's going to happen to this woman? In Australia, in the real case, she had re requested a review of her case about three or four years ago. Three judges, all of them men, said, no, we just can't buy the idea that, that four kids could die in one family. So anyway, fast forward, there is uh, genetic research. And so this the young lawyer has to find out what that's all about. Is that something that would help her aunt? She has to convince the law firm she works for to consider taking this on as a case pro bono, which they never do. And uh, the final part of it is her involvement in a, a review, another trial for her aunt um, to see if maybe there's something else or some other reason why these kids might have died. So I'll leave it at that. What was the one pattern change that you resisted the most and was keeping you from writing fiction for a long time? <laughs> what a good question. Um, I, I tried to write fiction maybe 15 years ago. Took some one or two online classes. And I remember one of them, I finally said, I can't do this. I'm not a good liar. I just can't lie. And one of the other um, participants in the students in the online course, he said, it's not lying, it's using your imagination. And I couldn't, frankly, I just couldn't, um, couldn't wrap my hand around, head around that. And so during COVID, at the start of COVID, I took another class and this was, it was a Zoom class. So we actually met, um, once a week or so. And the man who taught it basically broke that down. And he said, it is imagination. You can do anything you want, uh, kill people. You can have buildings blow up, but this is, this is all, it's not real. And it's okay that it's not real. You just have to make it believable. And I, that was an, that was huge. So with that, that was number one. And the second pivot, I guess, is um, I it, when that started, I decided to try and learn how to write fiction and 
to try and learn how to play tennis. I have a family of two sons and a husband who all play tennis very well. And over the years, they've said, mom, you should learn how. And I would take lessons for two days. And then I'd say, no, let me just be the cheerleader. I'll watch you all. So I started learning to write fiction. And I told myself and I told anyone who would listen, I'm writing the world's worst novel. And my good husband said, well, that's a terribly low bar. And I said, this way, I have no pressure. When I write academic work, I have to be sure that everything is perfect before it goes out. And this way I can play. And same thing with tennis. I know I'm no good at it. I'm not an athlete. But if it's something that I can become a beginner in, that's great. What I did not anticipate was that learning those two things did put me in the role of being a beginner. And I thought, oh my gosh, I need to do this more because I'm still a teacher. So when I'm teaching these very smart executives who are experts in whatever field they are in, whether it's marketing or supply chain stuff or healthcare, they are experts in something, but they're not experts in other things. And so when I help them learn something to do in the areas that I teach in, I, I keep thinking, put yourself back in the role of being a beginner. This is new to them. I may know about it, but they don't. And so that has been incredibly useful to say, well, you know, I'm, we're going to do this, talk about this concept. And I don't say this to them directly, but basically I lay it out in three or four different ways so they don't think I'm repeating the same activity to the same actual discussion, but we really are. Because I also learn, I need to hear instruction in tennis probably 50 times before it starts to sink in. I need to hear instruction in fiction writing, or I need to try something many, many times before it starts to become a little bit of a habit. And that's very critical, I think, in, in helping people learn is to find ways that they can look at something and issue a concept, they can practice it, they can try it out and do it in several different ways. So the notion of becoming a beginner at after many years of teaching something I know well and bringing that way of thinking back into the classroom, that has been incredibly helpful. So I think when you say pivots, I think putting many of us want to be good at, some of us try to be perfect at some things. And so when I said to myself, I'm not a good liar, and someone says, you're not lying, you're using your imagination, that says to me, aha, I'm putting myself in a beginner role in terms of using my imagination in a different way. I'm creative in, in certain ways, but I was not creative in the fiction way. So that was a good one to overcome. And then this notion of you don't have to be the expert. You can be a beginner and you can also help other people who are beginners grow more. All that was has been fabulous. And I, I, I don't want to thank COVID for that, but I wouldn't have had the time on my own to do some of this without it. I have uh, one final question. How did your nonfiction writing influence your fiction writing? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, and I'm wrestling with that right now on this second novel. I, as, a, as an academic, 
um, I've always written from a place of something concrete. I have done the research. I've if it's if it's quantitative, I've run the numbers. I do a lot of interviewing. I have something concrete to write from. And certainly with a case of too many deaths, I started with this situation case in Australia, and that was the concrete part I could use. So I had to learn a lot about the genetics uh, that was coming up in that legal case. And I had to learn about how courtrooms operate a little bit beyond what we see on TV. So I talked to a friend of mine who's a judge and a couple other people who knew something about that. So I had something hardcore concrete that I could use to write from, and I felt more comfortable with that. So that that's, I think I'm learning that about myself, that I will need something concrete as I move forward in fiction. The next one I'm trying to get going on is, uh, will be about art crime in Vietnam. I know a lot about certain parts of Vietnam and certain aspects of Vietnam. So that's sort of my starting concrete. I don't know anything about art, art crime. So I've been researching, reading about that so that I can bring those two things together. So so I think, I mean, I, I love that question. To, to start with nonfiction writing and then move into fiction, the concreteness I know I need to use that and bring it in. I did years ago, got into what's called creative nonfiction, which is where you use fiction approaches in writing about nonfiction ideas. And um, so you use, you can use dialogue, you can use setting, you can use story development. And so I have used that over time, but not fully. And so this now to move into fiction, I can really, start applying some of that. But, but um, I mean, that good questions. Thank you. That's great. Nancy, you were an amazing guest for this podcast. And I thank you for appearing on the Heartland Author podcast. Well, I appreciate it so much. And I, I think anybody who talks with you gets a chance to use the brain in a different way and learn something about themselves. And so congratulations to you on that. Thank you. Nancy was a wonderful guest to interview. This is Aaron Apollo Camp reminding y'all to write your imagination. Bye for now. You can learn more about me and my book writing projects at camparenapollo.witsite.com forward slash author AAC. You can follow me on Facebook at author AAC and on Instagram at AAC Scribe. Copyright 2023, Aaron Apollo Camp, All Rights Reserved. This podcast episode is intended for the private listening of our audience. Any reuse or retransmission of this podcast episode without the express written consent of the podcast host is prohibited, except under fair use guidelines. Royalty-free music and sound effects obtained from https colon forward slash forward slash www.zapsplat.com.